You're listening to the Am Writing Fantasy Podcast. In today's publishing landscape, you can reach fans all over the world. Query letters are a thing of the past. You don't even need a literary agent. There is nothing standing in the way of making a living from writing. Join two best-selling authors who have self-published more than 20 books between them. Now, on to the show with your hosts, Autumn Burt and Jasper Schmidt. Hello, I'm Jesper, and this is episode 140 of the Am Writing Fantasy Podcast. And uh, Autumn is busy launching her brand new novel today, so I've instead brought someone else on, so I won't be all alone here, because that would be pretty boring on a podcast. But <laughs> joking aside, I have to say that I really looked forward to this conversation. Uh, our little piece of intro music there to the podcast does say that you don't really need a literary agent or worry about gatekeepers and all that stuff. But that is all true if we're talking about self-publishing, but not so much if you want to get a traditional publishing contract. And uh, Autumn and I have actually started talking a bit about maybe trying to become hybrid authors, meaning that we will have both self-published books and traditionally published titles. And uh, I guess in some ways you could say that... Uh, it's a bit of for selfish reasons as well that I've uh, I'm now joined by the very knowledgeable Jane Friedman today, and welcome to the I'm Writing F Fantasy Podcast, Jane. And uh, I hope you won't mind me picking your brain today. <laughs> Not at all. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, I have a sneaky suspicion that uh, quite a few of our listeners will already know who you are, Jane. Um, but uh, let me just, I'll try to give a short introduction, Jane, and then you can see if I miss out something important here. <laughs> so uh, Jane has more than 20 years of experience in the publishing industry, and in 2019, she was awarding, awarded Publishing Commentator of the Year by Digital, Digital Book World. And Jane also has an incredibly popular, I guess I could say, newsletter for authors, which in 2020 was awarded Media Outlet of the Year. And she also runs the award-winning blog for writers over at janefriedman.com and has been featured by New York Times, Washington Post, Publishers Weekly, and the list kind of just goes on and on. <laughs> Did I miss anything, Jane? <laughs> those are the important ones, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I think with those credentials, uh, it's quite obvious why I wanted to have a chat with you about traditional publishing. Uh, but maybe maybe before we get into all of that, maybe you could just sort of share a bit about yourself that maybe has less to do with the business side, but more like who you are a bit. Yeah, I started working in the business in the late 1990s, right out of college. So in some ways, my <laughs> my life has been spent on nothing but publishing in one form or another. Um, I did go full-time freelance in 2014. So, you know, I was traditionally employed at a book publishing company, at a media company, at a literary journal, at a university. <laughs> and then finally, after, you know, I guess it was 15 years, 15 years of, of working for other people, I decided to just embark on my own. So I've been I'm uh, very happy working independently. It's it's a combination of doing the newsletter that you mentioned, which is for authors, uh, online teaching, and then I also do some consulting. So aside from that, you know, <laughs> I do a lot. I do a lot of travel, but a lot of it's because I go to writing conferences. Um, so 
during the pandemic, that certainly slowed down dramatically. And I've spent a lot of time at my home office in the past year, but it's been good. I've been able to focus on things that I didn't have time for when I was traveling so much. Yeah. What what do, what drew you to publishing and writing originally? Do you, do, you, do you know? Or was it more like some people stumble out of college and by coincidence, they end up in some sort of industry? But was yeah, there something I, particular that drew, drew you in there? I, it's it's hard for me to say that I was drawn as much as it was the maybe the process of elimination when I was growing up. Um, I I come from a very rural part of the United States. There wasn't a whole lot to do other than go to school and go to the library. Um, my mother was a very bookish person. She was a librarian, in fact. So I spent a lot of hours at the library, and I was just good at school and I liked reading. And I don't know that. I think this happens to many people who ultimately become English majors or they study creative writing. They think, well, I, I like books, I'll study literature. And so it just I but I think I'm fortunate in that I was able to turn that into something that actually pays the bills. Not everyone does that. <laughs> no, that's true. Yeah, I still have very fond memories myself of uh, the library when I was a kid. I, I just I don't know. I I just love I could spend hours and hours in there. Um, well, that back then it was most comic books I was looking at, of course. But you know, you could just go and take a new one and another one and another one and sit there for hours and just uh, go through all those pages. I don't know. There's something about it, isn't there? I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I I've always been drawn to bookstores and libraries from a young age. Although I will admit, now in the digital landscape, it's I do a lot less of that, and I do have as much of a fascination with computers and with figuring things out from a digital media perspective. So I like bringing those two areas together. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, in terms of uh, talking about traditionally publishing contracts and how to get one, which is actually something that um, we are asked not all the time, but uh, on a similar regular basis, Autumn and I, uh, my co-host are asked about how to how to do that, how to get those kind of contracts. And honestly, we're not the best one to advise on this because while Autumn did have a contract like 10, 15 years ago, but I, I don't, we're not like the expert on this topic. And uh, also, as I said a bit earlier, because we're actually considering trying maybe to see if we can find an agent for ourselves, maybe in a year's time or something, once we have a novel written for that particular purpose. Um, I was thinking that maybe we could just try to structure our conversation in, in the same fashion, like, sort of a bit step by step uh, mm -hmm. where where do we start and uh, and where what happens next and next and so on the process because then, then it might make a bit more sense for the listener sure. and obviously where we start is with the story itself you know mm -hmm. um, and do do we need to sort of think about what kind of story or what kind of novel we we write if we want to get it traditionally published Uh, a little bit, but not too much. Okay. So, in, in other words, I think first and foremost, you need to write the story you feel called to write or that you're interested in writing or that you, you're passionate about. And that's sort of cliched advice you hear a lot. Um, but it's true. I mean, it takes far too much work, especially in my mind, to go through the traditional publishing process to try and write something that you think is going to just fit the market. To me, that's actually what self-publishers do. They're always studying what's happening uh, in the market and trying to jump on uh, where the readers are going. 
that happens in traditional publishing too, but I think there's also a concern for what's this writer doing that only they can do. Um, usually it comes out of your own obsessions or interest areas. So, but on the, on the other hand, you know, you do have to be aware of kind of the model that traditional publishing works under, which is they, if you're a first time author for them, they want the book to be a certain length, you know, they're going to get dissuaded if your book is say more than 150,000 words or more than 120,000 words is usually the where things start to get rejected more often because it's just too long when they don't know you yet as an author or they haven't established an audience for you yet. Um, it just costs more in terms of time and editing to do a longer book. And, you know, if you're writing something that is a real mashup or hybrid of lots of different things, if it's really too far out there, that might also dissuade them. So they like things that are both familiar and fresh, which this is very frustrating to writers because (laughs) (laughs) what defines that? No one knows. You know it when you see it. Yeah, because, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I have this impression as well that, Traditional publishers, and I guess therefore also agents, they don't like too. I mean, maybe some agents do, but but I, if we sort of just take it in the broader sense here, um, I have a feeling that they don't like to take too many chances. Meaning that they probably prefer to have something that is at least fairly similar to what is generally on the market today. Do do you think that's a correct assumption or am I just reading into things that I shouldn't? (laughs) No, I I think it's true that they want something that fits the genre or subgenre. They like, they don't like things that are hard to categorize or that don't have good comparable titles or authors. So you should be able to easily imagine your book or yourself sitting alongside other books and authors um, you know, you can say if readers like X, they will like Y. If if a publisher can't do that because your work is too odd or it's just, you know, it doesn't fit the model, it, yes, it's going to look risky. Yeah, so, so that also basically means, uh, I fully agree with what you said before about um, indie authors are probably doing far more market research than the traditional publishers <laughs> are. But but it, it doesn't mean, though, that you should be doing at least enough market research then to be able to understand what are those tropes and, and what do what do I need to deliver upon? Because if you're getting too creative and maybe thinking that, let me write something they've never seen before because then I'm going to blow their mind, they yeah. will probably think, well, I can't sell this stuff. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but what about standalone versus series? Then, um, if you're trying to get an agent, um, would it be best to just write a complete standalone thing, or do you give them like here's just book one of a series and leave it open ended, or doesn't it matter? Maybe. Well, there is, of course, a really strong tradition of series in science fiction and fantasy. Uh, as well as some other genres like mystery uh, or romance. So, but it, it's safe or safer to propose a book that is the first in a potential series. So it can stand alone, but if it does really well, you're ready and it would make sense to continue it. Um, 
So I know it's like a little dance that everyone's doing. Um, and, <laughs> and the reason for this is publishers, you know, they like to see how things perform before they fully commit. Um, so it's not that they're going to abandon you after the first book. Um, but if, if the sales just don't go in the right direction, especially like after book two or book three, if the sales get softer and softer instead of stronger, you may find yourself getting dropped by the publisher. So in other words, what that would mean on a practical level is that you would never want to query a series saying, this is a five book series and you have to take all five. <laughs> like, you know, something that basically works to you both, both you and the publisher into a corner. Yeah. Um, but I'm also thinking, and, and I don't know how often that happens, but I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm just speculating a lot here. So you have yeah. to correct me every time <laughs> I'm saying something incorrectly, but I, I'm assuming a lot of things, I guess. But I would think that spending the time to write, like, say, book one, two, and three, and then give them book one and say, okay, here it is. I have two more books if you're interested, is probably not the best use of your time. I, I, I'm thinking it's probably better to just write the first book leave it in at least enough open-ended that you can continue and then just see if they want it before, because yeah. couldn't you just risk spending a lot of time writing three books and they don't even, even want it, or even if they want book one and then they will never buy book two and three. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I would not, uh, I would not write all three, four, five, however many books there. I would not write the whole series. And then start querying. I would write the first book and then have a really nice outline of how the series might unfold. And that doesn't take much. Like it takes maybe a paragraph per book to show what direction you're going to take it in. Yeah. Okay. So basically like a, a bit of a plot overview or something mm -hmm. so that right. the agent can see what your thoughts are. Right. And you wouldn't even submit that first. You, you have to sell the first book right. before you can have that conversation or at least interest them in the first book. Yeah. Okay, well, well, let's assume that we have a story written now, and at least we think that it is abiding to tropes, and we believe that we have at least written something that is fairly common, and of course it has a good cover, and it has a good genre tropey title and all that stuff. Um, and we then need to find an agent, um, and I think, I think the general advice is that if you, you should not try to approach any of the big publishing houses without an agent, is that right? That's correct. They're closed to authors. So your only way through the door is through an agent, unless you happen to know someone on the inside or you have a really good famous best-selling author friend who's going to make an introduction for you. Uh, even if that were the case, though, you'd probably want an agent to help you negotiate the contract, which I know we'll talk about. So yeah, I'd, I'd say when you're starting to query, agents are step one. And if the agent search doesn't go as intended. You can then start looking at publishers that are smaller, independent, that don't require you to have an agent. They'll take your submission directly. Yeah. And I, I want to come back to that one about the smaller publishers, but mm -hmm. I guess first, I mean, how do you find an agent? <laughs> That's like the million dollar question that everybody asks yes. probably. <laughs> yes. So it's actually not, it's not rocket science. There are a few recognized up-to-date databases that you can right. use and you just filter down to the agents who would be interested in your work. Uh, you can do this at sites like uh, querytracker.net, uh, duotrope.com. 
There's also Publishers Marketplace where you can look up deals that agents have made and you can filter the deals by genre. You can also do keyword searches in those deals. So if you're, you know, if you have a some sort of a space opera, let's say, you could actually search the deals for space opera and look for agents who seem to like those sorts of books. So if you use any one of those, or it's best if you use a combination, it helps to consult different sources. You can then, once you've got a working list, and it might be, you know, for genre fiction generally, you can almost find a hundred agents just right off the bat without even working that hard. So then once you've got your list of a hundred or however many, you would want to go to that agency website, make sure that they're still open for submissions. Sometimes they'll close, um, you know, check out their guidelines, make sure it's a good fit, look at their client list. Do you think that this person is going to actually like what you send them? And then you send off your query. And can you sort of just assume that the people or the agents that are on lists like that are good agents or or do you need to like vet the list yourself as well to check like, do they actually know what they're doing? So to yeah. <laughs> yes. So the, the three sites that I mentioned are, I think, quite reliable. You're, it's, it would be hard to find an unreputable agent through one of those three sources. I'm not saying it can't happen, but the likelihood is greatly diminished. I think where you get into real trouble with bad agents is if you start Googling around very broadly. Like if you go to Google and just type in literary agent, that is a terrible, terrible idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You'll get all sorts of scammers and people who have a financial interest in luring you in and charging you money and who knows what. Um Now, there are definitely good agents and better agents. There are some who are more well-known and less well-known. Those are who, those who are still establishing their career and those who have been around for decades. And that's where you get into really subjective concerns. Like some people, they want to get the biggest possible agent or they want an attack dog agent. Or they're like, actually, I would like an agent who's still building their list and maybe they'll they'll pay more attention to me if I'm one of their early clients. And these are all legitimate reasons to choose one agent over another. Um, in the United States, there's an organization called the AALA, which if you're a member of, you have to abide by a certain code of ethics. Um, and it's also a place to go with complaints. So if you do have a bad experience, you can go to the AALA and say, you know, one of your members, uh, has treated me poorly, or you, you tell them what happened, and they they can help address it. Um, not all agents are going to belong to that, but a good number of them do. Um, and there's a similar organization in the UK, and I have to imagine probably in Europe too. Yeah, because it, it's it's difficult, right? And and sometimes you see on the internet these um, really bad examples where, uh, yeah, almost like bordering on fraud almost right like uh, yeah. from from because and the the terrible thing is that the authors in this case are they're sort of chasing a dream hmm. and if somebody then says okay i'll take you on board uh, I, i guess a lot of people won't have their critical senses um uh, on guard there and uh and then they jump in and well regret it later so that's not good yes you're absolutely right a lot of people are preying on people's dreams, hopes, and aspirations. You know, one of the first signs you may be dealing with a bad actor is that they praise you to the skies. 
um, and then ask for your money. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so that's that's a sequence of events that should raise a red flag for you. Um, people, writers especially, just get really taken in when someone says, "Oh, you're you know you're brilliant, you're a genius," and you know it's what you've been hoping for all this time for someone to select you and validate the hard work. But you know the truth is that agents and publishers both tend to leave you feeling a little cold. Um, they're not the most complimentary people in the world. They tend to be very um, uh, pragmatic, critical. Well, you need to change this and this, and then you know maybe we'll sell it. You know, they just don't. They they don't want to build up your hopes. In fact, they'll be very realistic. Yeah, and I guess as well. Well, if 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 they ask you for money, you should just run for the hills, right? Uh, I mean, why yeah. why would you you shouldn't pay them anything unless they make a deal? That's right. They only earn money when they sell your book. So they in the U.S. agents get fifteen percent of everything the authors make. That's fifteen percent of the advance, fifteen percent of the royalties, fifteen percent of you know an option sale, um, or it could go as high as 20% if there's a co-agent that gets into more complicated territory. But in other words, you're, you're not paying them out of your pocket. There are like some rare cases where maybe the agent will say, look, you know, I really like what you've got, but there are these issues that need to be resolved. Um, I can't resolve them for you, but maybe you should go hire this editor and they're going to help you. You know, maybe, maybe you you would invest at that point, but just be super cautious because, you know, until you have an actual manuscript that the agent wants to represent, you could just be spending a lot of money for for nothing. You have to agree with what they're saying, I guess, is what the point I'd like to make. You have to see that they're right. Yeah, quite recently here, I heard another example of um, an agent, which again, of course, was, it was fraud. But the agent was like saying, well, this this is a really good manuscript, but there is a lot of issues in it. And then lo and behold, I can fix them for you. You just need to pay me X amount. Of, I can't remember how much it was, but something. And then I'll get my editor, which I have in-house, and they will fix it for you. And Yeah. Well, that sounds nice, but again, don't pay them money. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think it's a good idea to. Uh, if an agent does think, I mean, it's it's true. There are many projects that need editorial work, but you have to be careful when the agent ha has a possible financial interest in you having that work done. Yeah. That's not good. But if you're then going off of these lists that you made, and maybe by the way, maybe you can you, maybe you can email me the, those lists that you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Then I can put them in the show notes for people. Sure. Um, but if if we're going off that list, and let's say we're then sending out query letters, which I'll come back to in a moment because I want to ask about that as well. But let's say we we're sending out hundreds of query letters, maybe, and then let's say some of them are a bit positive, and they come back and and say like okay this looks interested but then i have heard examples of agents then saying like they want to change something or this character doesn't work or this part of the plot doesn't work or whatever but wouldn't you sort of be chasing your own tail if you keep correcting things every time one of those agents comes back and say something It, it's possible so what you've described is called a revise and resubmit request 
So this is where an agent has a phone call or sends you an editorial letter saying, look, I'd like to represent this, but you need to change these things. And they'll go into sufficient detail that you 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 get it, like you know what they're trying to get you to do. Um, and then you go off and, and do it. But you have, kind of going back to my earlier point, you have to agree with the work. Like you have, it should excite you. Like it, you should feel like, wow, yeah, this is going to make such a better book or yeah, I can see why they're making those suggestions and I can do it. Like I'm willing to compromise in that way. Um, usually what I tell people is if, I mean, it's a, a revise and resubmit request is great. Just neutrally speaking, it means they really see something in the project or in you and they they would like to see it come to fruition. They don't issue those to just anyone. And they're probably testing to see if you have the ability to edit yourself, because that's really required when you begin working with a publisher. You know, the, the editor you work with is going to expect you to take revision suggestions. So this is like the first, you know, the first hurdle <laughs> that you have to get over. Um, but in any event, if you query several dozen agents and then and you see a pattern in the response, like they're all wanting you to do X then you know, okay, I'm getting a really strong message here that X is an issue that has to be resolved. But if you get a bunch of feedback and it's all over the map, some people are like, well, you need to change the characters <laughs> and others, well, you have to change the plot or no, you can't, you can't have this setting or your dialogue sucks. Like if there's no pattern, that's when I would really be reluctant to make changes. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um. But what about those famous query letters then? Um, <laughs> what what do you what what should you focus on there? It's almost all about the story premise. So the query is we're talking about a short, very short pitch, usually not more than three hundred words, maybe four hundred for some types of fantasy where it might you ha might have to do some setup or world building to make sure that the whole thing makes sense. But very short, and we're talking about character, problem, setting. Those are the key elements. The rest of the query outside of that is really just housekeeping. So by housekeeping, I mean there's, you know, maybe a hundred words of a bio. Um, there might be an element of personalization there where you talk about, I'm approaching you because I see you represent blah, 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 which is similar to my book. Um. And you'll, of course, have the title and the word count, and you'll comment on uh, the comparable titles, uh, what you think is going to be similar. But the, like I said, the bulk of the query, though, the decision is made on the story. Does the agent or editor think this story has legs in the market? Does it intrigue them? Does it make them excited? And does it make them want to read or request the manuscript? Now, there's a difference between sending a query by itself and sending a query with sample chapters. So if an agent or a publisher, for that matter, is asking for a query plus the manuscript, they probably know from experience that a lot of writers are crap at writing their queries. <laughs> so, you know, if they see the query and they're like, oh, this is a mess, they'll just flip to your first pages and see if there's something there. 
Yeah. Um, so in those cases, I think the query holds less weight and the agent's probably more interested in just reading the opening and seeing if you can write. So there's some reassurance there, <laughs> I, I hope, um, and that you're going to be judged on the writing rather than your ability to pitch. But for those people that you're just sending the query, um, they're prob- those might be agents who are more concerned with things like, do you have a high concept? Can you write just a really snappy pitch where the character or the voice really comes through? Does the book kind of sell itself when you know the general outline of the story? So it does put a lot of, it puts more pressure on the writer to have something that just feels exciting, um, whether that's the character or the premise or, you know, something about it, you know, that jumps out. Yeah, and it's it's just so much easier said than done to to mm-hmm. write an an interesting um, summary, I guess, of of the story. Yeah. Um, because as well, when sh- once you are well, not e- it's not even a blurb level, right? But it's more like just a summary of what's happening. It's it's it can be very difficult to actually make that sound interesting uh, other than it's just like, well, then there is this story about this guy who this does blah, blah. I mean, it's, it, it very easily becomes this sort of boring, bland synopsis. Right. So that's precisely what you want to avoid. Yeah. Is something <laughs> that's really like kind of plot oriented and mechanical, because that will be a turnoff. Um Even if the book is very plot driven, I think it's necessary in the query to be able to marry together the character and the plot. Um, And in the case of fantasy, you need to probably have a couple sentences up front that kind of establish the parameters. Like, are we on a whole, in a whole other like uh, world or planet? Um, What's the, what's defining life in this world that you've created? Um, you shouldn't assume too much about what the agent or editor may understand about the world you've created. You have to be pretty direct. Um, and, you know, I think the the thing that often gets left out of the queries I see is the relationship tension. So most times we're really intrigued by stories where we see people in opposition or people are trying to preserve a relationship that matters to them, but there are forces getting in the way or their personal motivations or what they need to achieve is in conflict with someone else in the story. Obviously you might have a villain and it's really clearly a protagonist antagonist situation. Um, so I think, think about the relationship dynamics and what, what's driving the story forward from that perspective, in addition to whatever interesting elements your fantasy world has in it, that's going to be, but hopefully these are, whatever's magical or fantastical about your story is also built into what the characters want, what's giving them trouble rather than just, you know, window dressing. Yeah. So rather than just writing about uh, the one one ring having to be carried to Mount Doom, you also write about the relationship between Sam and Frodo and and how they struggle and and so on. It's an excellent example. Yeah. 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 and why, while you were saying that, I, I just got to thinking because you, you were talking about those sort of websites with lists of agents and so on. I, w- I just started wondering all of a sudden if there was like a depository of like, here are examples of really good query letters or something. Some people could look at as examples. Yeah. Do you know if something like that exists? 
In fact, uh, the query tracker site that I mentioned has a really robust set of resources and message boards and, and posts where they feature queries that actually worked. Um, and, you know, there's even the potential for you to post your query in the message boards and get feedback from other people. Although you have to be careful, you can get a lot of different opinions. Yeah. <laughs> you're left feeling more confused. Um, but I think one of the best ways to write a better query, I think, to the point you're making is to actually see a lot of them and you you start to see what works. Yeah, yeah, because it's, it's often rather than trying to invent the wheel again, you know, it often works a lot better if you can just, it, the same thing goes for when we are writing blurbs, for example, Autumn and I often do check out like, um, what are the within this shop genre? What are like the best selling books in this shop genre? And is there like some common elements that they use across those blurbs? Because again, you will start seeing commonalities and you can start to see, oh, okay, I see they always focus on something to do with this part or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and then you can make your own version of that, obviously, but, but then you're already like 10 steps ahead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So let's, um, uh... Well, now we have a book. We have found some agents to send query letters to, and we have written an awesome query letter as well, hopefully. <laughs> so let's say that one of these agents then comes back to us and say, okay, this this is great. I would like to represent you. What What happens now? So they'll have a conversation with you where they talk about, their strategy for submitting it. Um, there's no right or wrong strategy here, but they, you know, they're going to hopefully be very open and transparent about what they want to see happen and the approach they'll take. For instance, some agents will put things up for auction and they'll make editors bid against one another. Uh, but you have to feel like you have a pretty hot property because if no yeah. one shows up to your auction, it's a little embarrassing. Um <laughs> The more common approach that covers most projects is the agent will send it out to a select number of editors that she thinks are going to be most likely to want the book. Um, and then there will be some waiting. And Two you years can tell, later. <laughs> well, let's, let's hope it's not that long. Um <laughs> You know, maybe a month, maybe two months. Um, You know, some of this depends on time of year. Like right now, it's a slower time because it's summer, people are away. And you can tell the agent, you know, I want to hear, I want to hear from you every time you get something from an editor, whether it's a rejection or whatever. Or you can tell the agent, look, that would, it would be really hard on me to hear about every rejection that comes through. Can we... (laughs) Can we touch base on this date and we'll talk about what's happened so far? Of course, if there's good news, the agent's going to call you right away. Um, so if there is good news, the agent will bring you the offer. And the offer starts off as it's not a contract. It's usually uh, they say, okay, th- this is the advance we're offering. These are the most important deal points. Like, is it world rights or not? What's the royalty rate look like? And there'll be some other little details. Like, is it a one book deal, a two book deal? And then if you just have one offer, it's kind of, it's very straightforward. Do you take it or not? And it's not the agent's job, you know, to push you in one direction or the other, but to explain to you the merits of the deal, you know, pros and cons and help you make a choice that's right for you. If you have a competing interest, that's 
wonderful. And now you can decide where do you think is the best home for the book? Who's going to do the best job of bringing the book to market? Yeah. And I'm also thinking that, I mean, just from a business perspective, I mean, if, if, because at this stage you shouldn't be too much of the author wanting to get published anymore, but you should more put your business hat on and say, okay, what makes sense here? And I'm almost, because I, I'm not an expert on this, but I, I've heard like the advances usually are pretty low when you're mm -hmm. first starting out. And what I don't quite like about that, to be honest, is the fact that the publisher has absolutely zero skin in the game. Mm -hmm. and so, so if they give you a very, very low uh, advance, then, well, they'll probably just leave it for you to figure out how to market it, and they're not going to throw much money behind it. Uh, so... And but I guess that's more like common nowadays as well because the publishing houses probably also are struggling a bit with finances and so on. So they put all their money on the big name authors, and then everybody else gets a very small piece of the pie. But I, is that right? Do you think? I mean, with book publishing, and sometimes it's hard to talk about it generally because each publisher can operate so differently from another one. Um, in the U.S., for example, there's Tor, which is really well known in the science fiction and fantasy space. And, you know, if you had an offer from them, even if it were a low advance, it could be really helpful to be published by them just because of the really significant direct-to-consumer community that they have access to that you wouldn't. Um, so there are a lot of decision variables here. I think it's true that a low advance means the publisher isn't going to be as uh, focused on getting a return on their investment. Um, but I think people aren't as, um, they're not as gracious with publishers as they might be of other businesses. Like let's say Silicon Valley startups have a 90% failure rate, but we don't go around criticizing them. Well, maybe in recent years we do. But at once upon <laughs> a time, we didn't go around criticizing them so much. We called them innovative and disruptive, even though the failure rate was high. Book publishing has always had a pretty high failure rate. Uh, I think the Penguin Random House CEO, Marcus Doley, recently said it's a 50% failure rate. And by failure, meaning this book did not earn back the money that was invested into it. Yeah, Not just advance, but time spent by staff uh, and the printing costs. But he doesn't see that as a failure of publishing. He just sees it as this is a very risky business that we engage in. Every book is a startup in his mind. And I think it's true. And it's like creating a new marketing plan from scratch every single time, unless, you know, you have imprints that are devoted to a single genre, which is why I mentioned Tor, because I think those sorts of publishers do have an advantage in that they're going after a similar group of readers with a lot of the things that they're publishing. When you get to big five publishing, where it's really random, <laughs> like it's all sorts of books that are coming out. I think that's when it gets very, very, very difficult. Yeah, and I want to return to something you said earlier um, about the publishing houses there, because if if we're looking at the big five, so we, we have Hachette, HarperCollins, Macmillan, Penguin Ran Random House, and Simon Schuster. Right? That's probably the very five very big ones. But so if we have an agent, and well, they've probably gone to these big five, and nothing happens. 
earlier on you mentioned uh, about maybe looking at the sort of next tier down kind of publishing houses. So, mm. um, what is like the the general view on doing something like that and, and having your agent goes going to those or do the agent just do that automatically? Just 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 go to everybody automatically, or, or how how do you approach that? It's going to vary by agent, but most agents are going to go to mid-sized houses and the really, let's say, prestigious or established smaller presses. So, for example, in the U.S., there's uh, Grey Wolf and um, Grove Atlantic, which are both independent publishers on the literary end of things. They're considered small by Big Five standards, but they punch way above their weight. You know, they win the book prizes and get on the bestseller lists. Um, and they tend to invest in their authors over many, many, many years. So even if your first book doesn't do well, even if your first five books don't do well, they're probably going to stand by you because they believe in what you're doing as, as an artist, because they believe in literature with a capital L. So I think that's the advantage you get when you start working outside of the big five model. You get people who are in it for lots of different reasons. Some are in it just for the commercial money bit of it. And there has to be some focus on that or else the publisher won't stay in business. Uh, but many publishers, the smaller they get, the more mission oriented they are. They're in the business to bring attention and light to certain types of literature or stories. So it can be very satisfying. You can have a closer relationship with your editor and it, they can be more agile, more experimental, more open to collaboration, easier to reach and communicate with than your big five publisher. And you would also need to have to trust the agent that he doesn't go out and query some sort of a very small press somewhere that mm. actually has no no muscles to, to, to use or whatever in the market, right? I mean... I guess the agent needs to, he, he should know that kind of thing, right? They ought to, yes. I have seen some shocking sales from agents to really small presses or what I would even consider hybrid publishers, um, where there might be no advance or even the author is asked to pay some money. Oh, um, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And I think how, you did not need an agent for that deal. Um, no. that, that was a total waste of everyone's time. Um, so... You know, if you have a decent agent, at some point they're going to say, "Look, I, I've gone to everyone that I think you should publish with. There might be some other publishers out there. They could be smaller, maybe you know, places that offer very small advances. It's not worth my time to go to these places, but if you want to, be my guest. So you might reach that point. Yeah, and at that point, I guess then you self-publish that novel and you write a new one, and then you give that one to the <laughs> agent and say, "Okay, try yes. this one instead." I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yes, ag agents. A good one should have a conversation with you about. Okay, let's. What's next? Let. What are you do? What's your next book? Do you have anything else in the drawer? What, yeah. What do we think the next move is? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Okay, so but let's assume that everything goes well, of course, because we want the success stories here, and uh, <laughs> you then get that offer. And you mentioned it a bit earlier on as well, uh, Jane, about the uh, the contract itself. And obviously, the agent should be able to, to some extent, advise you on, on the contract. But I, at the same time, I've heard some really, like, awful examples of what might be in those contracts. So, uh, what I mean, I, I guess what I'm getting at is I'm not 100% convinced that you can just trust that the agent will understand everything and tell you everything. You probably need to 
well, read everything, also the small letters yourself. And, and if you don't understand them, maybe even get a lawyer to look at it or something. But what, what what's your view on that? I mean, usually you can trust the agent to take care of the contract in its entirety and explain to you what every clause means and what you're getting into and where you might be making compromises or things that where you're agreeing to something that's less than ideal. Um, usually some of the most important parts of the contract to negotiate are what would what would be um, what would be an unacceptable manuscript scenario. So like where there's a difference of opinion between you and the publisher about what what changes to make, what's acceptable, um, what happens in those instances. So that should be carefully negotiated. As, you know, most agents are going to try to ensure that you don't have to give back the advance if there's some disagreement that would lead to no publication of the book. You don't want to be in that vulnerable position of having to give back money you've already spent. Um, and there's there are lots of ramifications of negotiating that well, and most agents are very focused on make, getting that part right. Um, the other big issue has to do with reversion of rights. So... And again, often if things haven't gone well with the publisher, you want to be able to sever that as cleanly and as quickly as possible. So the reversion of rights clause governs how that happens, when it can happen, how long it takes, etc. You know, those are areas that every agent knows about. You wouldn't have to, I think, be concerned about what what they're doing on that front. Um, but of course, there are lots of things like you know, what are the royalty escalators? Like, how does your royalty increase as sales increase? What are the different percentages for all sorts of t sales? What are, whether, what are the rights, subrights situations there? Is your agent going to be handling any of those sales? You could hire a lawyer to help, but they would have to know what publishing standards are. Yeah, of um, course, yeah. Or you could also, in the US, if you're a member of the Authors Guild, they have a contract service where they'll review any contract at no charge. There might be something similar in other countries where if you go to your author society, they have something comparable. Right. So yeah. it doesn't, doesn't hurt to get another set of eyes, but your agent, I mean, that's your agent's job. Like that's job number one. Is to yeah, get the I, deal I, right. I understand. Yeah. And maybe I'm just too skeptical, but because I'm, I'm also just thinking that the agent has, he's sort of playing, he or she is sort of playing on two horses at the same time here. I mean, now on one hand, they of course want to have a good relationship with the author because the author is the client. But at the same time, they also want to close that deal with the publishing house because that's the only way they're going to earn some money mm -hmm. on all the, on the hours they spend already. So I, I'm just a bit skeptical that you can a hundred percent just trust their word all the time. And maybe they sort of smooth out small things here and then say, yeah, it's not big deal. You can, you can accept this and, Because then we can close the deal, kind of. I, I right. don't know. Maybe I'm too skeptical. <laughs> um, I think where those sorts of issues come more into play is when the book's already under contract. And, you know, when there are differences of opinion or there's some tension between you and the publisher, I think there the agent is, you know, I find them... Mm, they're going to try and smooth it over as best they can because they don't want to lose the relationship. Mm with the editor or with the publisher because they have more books to sell yeah. presumably to those yeah. people and they don't want to burn a bridge. So I think agents still do work. I don't use the word attack dog lightly, but you know, some of them are very aggressive on behalf of their clients and they have too much power to be pushed around by a publisher. And they could, they could say, look, I'm not going to bring you my next book by 
whatever new huge talent there is. So they have a, it depends on the agent, how much leverage they have in that regard, but they can, you know, give editors the cold shoulder. Um, With the contract, something that might offer reassurance is that usually agents deal with publishers multiple times over the years, and they end up having a negotiated boilerplate for their agency. So you're not starting from scratch each time. You get the benefit of every other contract that agent has negotiated with that publisher. So, right. and, and then they make some changes that are unique for you and your project. Right. So, you know, anything that you know, that would be of concern to the to you is going to be of concern to their other clients. So that's why I, I'm less worried about the issue. No, okay. No, that's good that you clarified that because it's it's probably just me being too skeptical, but uh, I'm also not in used to that kind of, uh, that part of the uh, publishing world uh, as you are. So so that was good to could clarify that. But, but look, uh, Jane, we've already sort of been from the beginning to the end of the process and we could probably keep on for an hour more <laughs> if we needed to yes. here. Um, but I, I mean, you share so much very good and insightful information so i was just wondering if if people want to learn more uh, about you and your advice and where do you want them to go my website is the best place that's janefriedman.com you can find out all the courses i offer the books the newsletters it's all mentioned there excellent and uh, thank you so much for your time jane Uh, it was a pleasure talking to you today Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. All right. So next Monday, Autumn will be back. Uh, we haven't quite decided what we're going to talk about yet, but I think it's going to be one of our funny top 10 lists. If you like what you just heard, there's a few things you can do to support the Am Writing Fantasy Podcast. Please tell a fellow author about the show and visit us at Apple Podcast and leave a rating and review. You can also join Autumn and Jasper on patreon.com slash amwritingfantasy. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll get awesome rewards and keep the Am Writing Fantasy podcast going. Stay safe out there and see you next Monday.